Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and this week's episode reminds me why I'm so happy to have this podcast. I don't know that I ever would have had this conversation if not for Big Questions, and I'm so glad I did. It's with hostage negotiator Chris Voss. Made me think about the use of questions, tone of voice, and body language in a new way. After speaking with Chris, I'm thinking about ways to use words and tone of voice in all kinds of negotiations, even when luggage is misplaced at an airport baggage claim. This conversation has given me a great deal to use in my day-to-day life, and I hope you're able to get the same benefits. By the end of the conversation with Chris, I actually saw myself in a new light. I've never looked at myself as a good negotiator, but listen to Chris. All right, if you're a good interviewer, and you are, that is the fundamental basis of great negotiation. So all these years, I've been thinking I'm a terrible negotiator, and the bottom line is I have these skills. I can apply these skills. You have them, and you understand them, too. And from our conversation, it's clear to me that you understand so yeah, you could, you could apply the skills. You're not far from being able to teach the skills. You have made me a new man. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from a guy who worked in the FBI crisis negotiation unit for 24 years and rose to become the FBI's chief international hostage and kidnapping negotiator. Chris is now the CEO of Black Swan Group, and the author of Never Split the Difference, negotiating as if your life depended on it. There's a lot to learn from him, and you may see yourself differently an hour from now. So let's get straight to Chris Voss. Let's pick up where we were right before the mic came on, because we were at an interesting place. I was talking about trying to break the world interviewing record, most consecutive interviews, And it made me wonder, what is the longest time that you ever had to interview or engage in a negotiation over a hostage or in in your line of duty at the FBI? Yeah, well, um, so first of all, if it was going to go over a long period of time, we'd give the other side breaks. I mean, you got to... uh, it's almost like a game where you want to put in, okay, you got half time, third quarter, or... No, no, I, uh, it's, it's not about coercing anybody. It's more about getting somebody to want to happily tell you the truth. So uh, rapport-based interviewing sounds dull as hell, but it's actually more effective than any other kind of interviewing. I'll get stuff out of somebody. You could waterboard them till they die. You're never going to get it out of them. So... If you're going to do that, you want somebody to trust you. You want them to tell you, he, him or her, tell you stuff they never told you before. I mean, you got, you got to give them breaks. You got, you know, can I get you a cup of coffee? Can I get you a glass of water? Are you tired? I mean, you, it's really, uh, crazily enough, it's about, uh, it's about developing a relationship with the other side. I tell you stuff. It goes faster. It's 10 times faster. I mean, I, I remember finally watching the, uh, the movie, Oh, Dark 30, about how they caught Osama bin Laden. And I can remember just always kind of being perplexed as to why it took him so long to catch up with that guy. And when I saw the stupid way the CIA was doing harsh interrogation, I thought, no wonder it took so damn long. This is, this is the dumbest interviewing ever. The harsh interrogation caused us to take longer to find that guy. So if I'm going to interview for somebody for a long t- period of time, I'm going to take it easy on him. I'm going to get stuff out of him a lot faster. This is everything I do. In fact, a general once told me that exactly what you said, that my style is much more conducive to getting the information than waterboarding. What goes into figuring that out? Because apparently it's not completely figured out. I mean, if you've got these answers, how come they're not used universally? That's a great question. I mean, we've always known this. It's just that when we got somebody we really, when we got bad guys, 
you know, societally, we want to punish them. I mean, I think the real reason why the U.S. tolerated harsh interrogation techniques was a way to get back at these guys, to punish them, to catch them, to punish them. So, we, you know, you know, we didn't care that they were being treated badly. We didn't really care that we were getting information. It was, it was, it was retribution. And, you know, uh, I, just because I understand something doesn't mean I agree with it, which is what the essence of being a hostage negotiator is about. I completely understand it. It's dumb, but I understand where it comes from. Okay, let's find out where you come from to have gotten that attitude. Did you grow up asking a lot of questions? No, I don't think so. You know, uh, I think I grew up wanting to figure out a better way to do it. I mean, I, you know, I don't consider myself a particularly smart person, but I've always enjoyed outsmarting smart people. You know, I remember when I went through the, uh, when I went through the FBI Academy, there are two legal classes that you take. My goal, since I knew that to be an attorney is to almost automatically get into the FBI because the FBI loves recruiting attorneys, I knew there were going to be attorneys in a class, a legal classes were going to be a really big deal. My overriding goal was to outscore every attorney in a class <laughs> on a test, which I did. I aced both of those tests and not one single attorney did. And to me, I could have quit right there. I would have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you want to be an attorney when you were a kid or it, did it just become, uh, I got to outsmart these guys? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't grow up wanting to be an attorney. I remember thinking about law school a lot, um, uh, where I went to college, got my undergraduate degree. I took every class on law that they had, but I got a business degree. Uh, so I think I was probably... I mean, I think everybody may consider wanting to be an attorney at some point in time because we look at attorneys as the people that are supposed to straighten things out, I think. And that might have been why I was drawn to the idea. Interesting thing about the way attorneys ask questions, though. It's, it's different from the way I would ask a question. Yeah, because you, you want actual good answers. And <laughs> attorney, attorneys are horrible at getting good answers. Well, but obviously they're taught to ask questions that way, and there's a reason they're taught to ask questions that way. Well, they got this ridiculous format to fit it into court. And they've come to learn the hard way that they don't want to give you any latitude in your answer. Attorneys are taught never to ask a question they don't know the answer to in advance, otherwise something's going to come out that embarrasses them. And they may lose an entire trial. And, you know, I've seen that happen. No shortage of surprises. When I was an FBI agent, myself and my partners, we took the largest terrorism case in the history of the United States to trial in a civilian court in Manhattan. So you can try terrorists in courts, and the world does not come to an end. Sky does not fall. Monsters don't rise from the oceans. You can try terrorists in civilian courts. And boy, I tell you what, an attorney had asked a question where he got caught with an answer he didn't expect. The defense attorneys got caught all the time and our prosecutors were horrified that that would happen. So the only way you ask a question is it's gotta be a closed-ended question, it's gotta be yes or no question, right. and attorneys are yes addicts. They want you to say yes. And the only way they can get you to say yes, this is, this is, this is the whole basis of my my business negotiation company. Where yes we, and no. Right? Where, well, we don't try to get people to say yes. I mean, it's just a dumb thing. You're going to feel coerced. You're going to feel cornered. You're going to feel trapped. If I make you feel coerced, cornered, and trapped, what are you going to do to our deal? Oh, I'm going to try and blow it up? Yeah, you're going to F it up. And, you know, yes, deals aren't made at agreement. Or profit isn't made at agreement. Profit is made at implementation. So you're going to drag your feet, every excuse, every chance you get to not comply if I've forced you into that deal. And that's people feel forced into deals with yes. And that's why, you know, we're taught that that's the way attorneys do things. And we think because they do it that way, it's a smart way. It's the worst, worst way in the world to make a deal. How long did it take you to figure that out? Yeah, uh, well, probably a couple things at different times. Because first of all, I mean, we first started talking about rapport-based interviewing. Right, and how did I get attracted to that? I can remember when I was a cop in Kansas City, um, a bunch of detectives got rotated back out onto the street because they had a lawsuit against the police department. And so these guys so got- that was retribution. 
It was retribution, and the and police department was trying to make a, a point. The detective said, when we get transferred to the detective bureau, one of the reasons it's tantamount to promotion is because you stay there forever and you never go back to patrol. And the police department said, okay, well, we got an answer to deactivate this. Let's rotate them all back to patrol. Okay. So consequently, I ended up in a car. I remember one guy in particular was phenomenal at talking to people. And he would get stuff out of people and get them to comply and admit the stuff with just this gentle inquiry and just treating people really well. And, you know, most young cops, we, get, we become a little bit of adrenaline junkies and you want to tell people what to do. And if they don't do what you tell them to do, you make them do it, which then it takes a long time to make somebody do something. Like I can make you do something, but it's going to take a while. And these detectives that show up and they get the same results in 20% of the time. And I remember watching, I remember watching this guy in particular going like, this guy's working some magic here. You know, this, this is really cool. And I was, I was blown away by that. What was he doing to blow you away? Uh, mostly, it was mostly tone of voice. Key. Yeah, and yeah. mostly just being nice. I can remember, we stopped a car, woman a tough neighborhood, woman driving, great big giant alpha male in a passenger seat. Now, great big giant alpha males do not let women drive him around. Unless he's wanted. Because if he's behind a wheel, you're going to find an infraction. All you got to do is follow him for a block. And you got him. But if he's a passenger, you haven't got that kind of leverage on him. So we see this car and we're like, all right, here's, here's reasonable suspicion if we can get it, you know, but this is worth looking at. So we, we find, a, we get behind it, we find a violation, we pull her over. Ask them both for ID. She's got a driver's license. He looks at us and says, I don't have any with me. Ding, 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 ding. Ain't no way he's not carrying ID unless he's wanted. So now without question, this guy in the passenger seat's wanted. We just don't know what his name is. So my partner, we just ask her, he real nice, he says, come on back to the car, just sit down, and, you know, just for a few minutes, needs your license and registration. So we're sitting there, and he, and he looks at her and he goes, hey, you know, um, what's his name? <laughs> As if the tone of voice was, I know him, I just can't think of his name. Right. And she completely sucked it, and without thinking, she blurts his name right out. And so he picks up the radio. We had a great computer system. He calls in. He says, hey, run, run a want on a guy. This is his name. He looks to be about 27 years old, probably about 6'3", 225 pounds. See what you got. And she starts to cry because they come right back with warrants on this guy. Now, she knows he's got warrants. That's why she's driving. And she knows that she has just given his name, and we're going to walk up there and arrest him, and he's going to know that she told us. <laughs> but <laughs> you driving around a fugitive, that's a chance you take. And I was, I was blown away by the way he triggered it out of her just with that magic tone of voice. It said so much. It by what I know now, it bypasses the prefrontal cortex where all your defense mechanisms are, it triggers an intentional emotional reaction in what's called the limbic system, and you blurt stuff out before you know what you've said. That's what we learned to do. I started to learn that way back when, and I do that in business negotiations now. I've heard this fact, and I always point it out when I can, that communication is 10% the actual words. About right, yeah. 30% tone of voice, and then 60% the, the body language. Right. Does that jive with everything? It's pretty close. There are, there are a number of ratios that are out there, and the important point is you got the proportion right. It's all, it all pretty much remains in a proportion. And, and, you know, what you said, tone of voice is at least three times as important as communicating an idea. Now, I, and I can use the exact same words and com communicate a completely different idea. I could say, you know, that's a really insightful observation. Or I could say, that's a really insightful observation. One of them said, you're smart. The other one said, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and I'm, I'm thinking of the example you gave before. 
if that officer had spoken to the woman who was driving and said, what's his name? Right. He never would have got a word out of her. Right. Guard goes right up. She's like, ah, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know where he is. He, I just met him. He was hitchhiking down the street. Yeah. It seemed like a nice guy. Wow. So are there things, once you realize you pick something like that up, do you become acutely aware of tone of voice, facial expressions? Well, you got to stay aware of it. I mean, it's a perishable skill. Really? Um, oh yeah, an old, an old uh, it, it a goes friend away. of mine it goes dies. away. It just, it's it, it's not riding a bike. It's a perishable skill. It's, How, um, well, that surprises me. Yeah, well, um, yeah. And, and, you know, most skills are. I mean, language. It's almost another language. You, you go become fluent in Spanish, and then you live in uh, where I grew up in Iowa for 10 years, what happens to your Spanish? Probably gonna go away. So uh, the language of great communication, the language of negotiation, uh, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta stick with it. You gotta, it's a little bit, a uh, comparison we make all the time is launching a rocket. It takes a lot more energy to get it into orbit than it does to keep it in orbit, but it still takes some energy to keep it in orbit. It doesn't take as much effort to acquire the skill. And it erodes invisibly. Like you will erode if you're not consciously working on it. When I volunteered on a suicide hotline in New York City, which is kind of the beginning of my negotiation career, I know because their training was really good. I know that when the when I initially came out of the training, I was sharp because the training was great. A year later, I came up for a review and my reviewer killed me. I picked up so many bad habits in the course of a year, and I didn't even know it. I, I, I still thought I was brilliant. And it What were you doing differently? I had gotten out of what we would now refer to as guided discovery into just real directed advice. And I got good at asking sort of trap, friendly but trap questions where, you know, you, you got to let the other side find their way. It takes a lot less time. I see. Like, by talking to so many people, you were seeing patterns and figuring where you could go in quick. Yeah, you know, you, you hear the, you t why are we good at solving other people's problems? Because we're not emotionally involved. You hear somebody's problems, you hear recurring problem set, you know what the answer is right away, you're just dying to tell the other person what the answer is. And you're probably pretty accurate because you're not emotionally involved. And you're not carrying all the emotional baggage into the situation that they're walking in with. So you can see it, see it clearly. The only, only problem with seeing it clearly is that doesn't help. Since I started on advice, I'm saying, look, I'm smarter than you. Why don't you be smart, as smart as me? Advice now, is really bad. What, what put you in that suicide preservation hotline to begin with? Because I wanted to be a hostage negotiator but, and how, I was like, what, summarily rejected. Whoa. All right. How, how did this all happen? Well, I figured it was easy, right? It's got to be easy. It's just talking. I go around talking all day. <laughs> I mean, really, it's any communication technique that people are really good at that make it look easy. It's, it's a deep dive to really understand how to do it. So I'd been a SWAT guy. I decided that I wanted to switch to negotiations because I love crisis response. I had had my knee rebuilt for the second time. I figured eventually they weren't going to be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So I'm like, all right, let me let me do negotiations. That's easy. You know, I could talk to terrorists. I can't. How hard could it be? <laughs> it was and, hard. And and so what's the next? What's the step if somebody wants to negotiate with terrorists? What what do they have to do in order to get in that position? Well, to to become to get trained, I mean, they got to have a reason to train you. So you, you have to show some initiative. You, gotta, you, you have to show that you're not high maintenance. If somebody you should listen to tells you what to do, you got to show you'll do it. So there's, which is, there's two parts to that. A lot of people tell you what to do, you just shouldn't listen to them. You got to be smart enough to know who you should listen to. There's a, uh, a phrase I saw recently that I really like, never take advice from anybody you wouldn't trade places with. <laughs> Good line. 
or and I would add to that, or who's in charge of what you want to do. Because they could be horrible at it, but they know what they need for somebody to do good. So they might not be great negotiators, but they know what a good negotiator looks like and they want a good negotiator working for them. One way or another, they gotta be responsible for the outcome, either by doing it or supervising it. And those are the two people you should listen to. But what's the, are there steps to somebody who wants to go into hostage negotiation where, where do you start out? Where do you apply? What's the procedure? You already have to be in law enforcement. Okay. Like every law enforcement agency that has hostage negotiators, they come from their internal people. And they're usually the general practitioners, if you will. The people that are on the street or the detectives, if it's a police department. The FBI, you got to be a special agent with the FBI first. And then there's uh, every... FBI field office has hostage negotiators. So you got to find out who those guys are and, and then you got to convince them that they should take a chance on you. What happened? I guess somebody wasn't taking a chance on you that led you to that suicide prevention hotline. Well, I, went, I went to Amy Bondaro, who was in charge of the hostage negotiation team for the FBI in New York. And I kind of presented myself. You know, we were both on terrorism squads. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I seemed like I was like, ta-da, here I am. And she was suitably unimpressed. You know, she kind of looked down her nose over her glasses at me. Amy's a tough New York chick. And she's like, really? You want to be a ho- on a hostage negotiation team, huh? She said, you got any background? I'm like, ah, I don't know what you mean. She said, well, I know you're a police officer. Um, we're on a negotiation team with the police department. I said, like, nope. She said, okay, any crisis intervention experience on a police department? No, not per se. All right, you got a degree in psychology, any background, therapy, any, anything. Um, and I said, like, no. And she was like, oh, okay, go away. <laughs> oh, man. She's like, go away. But you're good at winning the game, so what happens then? Well, you know, I have that rare quality of doing what I'm told by people who should, I should listen to, which is... Actually, it's really rare because I said, you know, I said, look, I, I believe very much in learning and self-initiation. I figure if, if you work hard, you're willing to learn, you got self-initiation, you, sh- you can get wherever you want to go, which is pretty much true. So I said, there's got to be something I could do. She said, yeah, okay, there is. She said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now, until you've done that, stop bothering me, go away. So I'm like, cool, I got clear direction. I went and found a suicide hotline. As it turned out, it was the same one she volunteered on. I came back to her about six months later, and I said, hey, look, I want you to know I've been on the hotline for about five months. And she was shocked. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, I, I was she shocked thought, that she, she thought was shocked. That she thought that you were going to walk out and that was going to be it. Yeah, well, because that's been the case. Okay. Um, you know, when, when I put together the book, Never Split the Difference, and I had to uh, go back to FBI agents whose names I wanted to use. And uh, FBI uh, said, look, you, you got to get everybody's permission if they're not already publicly associated with this. And Amy's one of them. And I'm going to tell the story about Amy, whether she lets me put her name in or not, because I think it was great. And plus, it was a woman leader doing the right thing. So I went back to Amy and she said, you know, I got to tell you something. Over the course of my career, I told literally a thousand people to go volunteer on suicide hotlines and two people did it and you were one of them. So right then, I mean, and I've looked back on a, a number of different things that I've been, were, you know, um, serendipity, if you will, fortune, the universe, whatever, your higher power intervened. It was because I asked the right person what to do and I actually did it. And they were so shocked that they then become, became great supporters. Now you get people in your corner. That's a beautiful story. And so what happens at that point? Now you've got Amy in your corner. Right. Where do you go from there? Well, then, then um, next time the opportunity comes up for somebody from New York to go to the training at the FBI Academy at Quantico. Quantico, that mystical place, subject to no shortage of TV shows and movies. From Silence of the Lambs to, you know, you name it, Mindhunters, FBI agents are always at Quantico. Quantico's a cool place. 
Quantico really is a special place and a lot for a lot of reasons. But you go down to the Academy of Quantico, and you go down. And I knew in advance I was going to be down there for two weeks. I um, I didn't know how cool the class was going to be. So in advance, of course, I'm not enthusiastic because while Quantico is a mystical place, there ain't nothing to do on the weekends other than go for a run. You're on a marine base. You want to go get a meal. You want to get a drink. You know, you got a half hour, 40 minute ride in front of you if you got a car and you might not have a car. The base itself is, you know, it's, there's nothing there. They even got a, it's so boring, they got a bar there to try to keep you from going out and getting drunk and driving back drunk, but it's boring. So you go down to the, you go down to the training and it's the only class the FBI puts on that there are negotiators from outside, people from outside. Every other class you go to at Quantico, it's just FBI agents. But the negotiation school has typically five experienced hostage negotiators from across the country. And the reason they're there is they were probably involved in some sort of crazy, horrific situation. They're going to tell you about it. And there's usually also five more from around the world. So you go down there expecting a relatively boring in-service, and you walk in the door, you get introduced to an international community of hostage negotiators, which is kind of cool. Is that a great job, being a hostage negotiator? Well, again, it's what you make of it. So it can be. I was into it. I ran to trouble. I mean, if there was a situation, I went to it. I didn't wait for one time, one and only one time, I waited to get asked. And as it turned out, it was right after I got out of the class. That very weekend, I was home. And they told us at the class, they said, you know, there's, there's 32 of you here. There's 22 FBI agents, 10 people from the outside. This weekend, somebody's going to get up to their eyeballs in something. We guarantee you. So I get back to New York, and that weekend, a woman drives a van into the front entrance of the UN, claims she soaked herself with gas, and she's going to set herself on fire. That was the one and only time I waited for permission to go. I'm watching this thing go down on TV, and I'm like, ah, you know, this is me, this is me. Ah, somebody got, somebody got to call me. Somebody's going to call. I'm waiting for the call. No call. And so I call a supervisor of my squad, who's, who's, and it's a separate hostage negotiation team. It's a separate duty, so he's not part of this. And I can remember saying, like, you know, Neil, this thing's going down. Should I go? And Neil's... And the type of person he was, he said, has anybody called you? I said, no. And he said, uh, no, nah, I wouldn't go if I were you. you know, that was his style. And so they resolve it. NYPD handles it. FBI doesn't even show. And I go in on Monday, and I, and I, I say to Amy, I said, you know, did you see this thing went down to the UN? She's like, nah, you know, because this was before the internet, internet and all that. So if you miss the news, you didn't, you didn't find out about stuff. She says, no, I, don't, I, was, you know, I was away from the phone and everything and the TV all weekend. I said, yeah. I, she said, why didn't you go? I said, nobody called me. She said, never wait, ever again. She said, just go. From now on, just go. And so with that kind of encouragement, you know, I found myself in the middle of quite a number of things just because I went. So as soon as you heard or saw about something happening, you would just show up? Yeah, or even, you know what, if I, if I even heard a rumor of something going down and we hadn't heard that it had been, that it was over. I went to one time a, a partner of mine, very good friend, great guy, Richie D. Filippo, Italian, obviously, New York Italian. He calls me, he says, Dobbs Ferry, New York, just north of the city. He says, something, something got started last night. There's a siege, I think, has gone down. I haven't heard that it's over. You want to drive up there. Now, that's a good hour drive. And this thing started the night before. And I'm like, I'm like all right, yeah, let's go. I mean, let's go. Because by that time, I'm like, run to trouble. Something good is going to happen. Run to trouble, something good is going to happen. Yeah, either on the way oh, or when you get there, something good is going to happen. Okay. So we jump, we, jump in at, we jump in Richie's car, we drive up to Dobbs Ferry, and this siege has been going on for eight to ten hours, and it is stalemated. And it's local PDs that are there. 
They're in a mutual aid situation, which means the local PD that's got it doesn't have enough SWAT guys, doesn't have enough negotiators. It's four or five police departments that have got this whole thing going. And Richie and I just start walking through. Again, I mean, don't wait to get invited. And, you know, better to ask, beg forgiveness and ask permission. And so you're, you're immediately trusted just because... No, you- no, 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 we are not. Actually, we're outcasts because we're the FBI and these are local, local guys. They don't, like the, they don't like the feds. Okay. You know, we're, we're immediately suspect. So we go to the command post and nobody really knows and nobody where the negotiators are, how it's going down, which is typical of a command post. They don't, they're out of touch. And it's been going on for eight to 10 hours. So they're getting bored. They don't know what's happening. Nobody shot anybody. And so they, they tell us they kind of think where things are, and um, they tell us where the perimeter is. We're at the outer perimeter, and now we're going to go to the inner perimeter. We get to the inner perimeter, we run across a, a lieutenant, happens to be a woman, doesn't make any difference, man or woman. Pretty much all lieutenants are the same. They're risk-averse. That's why they're lieutenants. So we tell her who we are, and she says, thanks, I'll tell him you stop by, which is just short of, go away. But we're not good at go away. So we, we keep walking and we find the negotiators and it's two negotiators and a captain who's a SWAT captain who has no idea what's going on. And he's watching the negotiators and we walk up and they glare at us. But thank God I'm with Richie because Richie's trained almost everybody in every county north of New York and they all know him and love him. He's one of the most charming guys on the planet. And they look over and they see Richie. Now, I'm the boss. I'm the head of the team. But they know Richie. <laughs> so, you know, they get the, the nods of, uh, hey, how you doing from Richie? And I'm like, cool, I'm with Richie. We're in. So we sit there and we're listening. The SWAT commander is only worried about whether or not we're going to take over. And finally, they take a break. And I go, look, here's the problem. Your negotiators have been, are exhausted. They've both been up in excess of 30 hours. His call came out. After the shift was over last night, they, they rolled out of here just before they went to bed. These guys are out on their feet. So there's two things I want you to understand. Number one, you need more negotiators. Number two, we're not getting on the phone because he's going to be afraid that I'm going to take over. So I got to say, we are not getting on the phone, but you're out of guys. Where are you going to get some more negotiators? Now, that puts this guy in a bad spot. He's like, I, I don't know. And I go, well, you got a problem here because your primary negotiator, Chet's falling asleep on the phone. I mean, he's, he can't stay awake now. So we talk with these guys for a while, and he's satisfied I don't want to take over the negotiation. So finally he says, well, we'll put our other guy on the phone, and you coach him. So I'm like, all right, but that's it. I'm not getting on the phone. Richie's not getting on the phone. You need to find more negotiators. I got on the phone coaching the other guy, changed the negotiators perfectly timely. The guy on the inside was a school teacher who had gotten extremely close to a 13-year-old girl who was one of his students, but not inappropriately. But just the fact that she was 13 and he was mentoring her, you know, it's going to look bad. And she, they found this, it had gotten out and he was concerned that she was going to accuse him of something and he was barricaded in his house. And he was just darn near suicidal over because he was going to lose his job and he was afraid of all these accusations, which he was not guilty of. But it doesn't matter. Because once those accusations are leveled in the community, you're done. Right. So we start coaching the negotiations, and then um, the guy's uncle is at the scene. We do not put the uncle on the phone. But his uncle was there because he loved him. And one of the things to get him out was like, you, you know, your, your uncle will talk to you as soon as you get out. You know, we're not putting the uncle on the phone, but he's, he's, he's out here. He's hearing the whole, he's heard the whole thing. Everybody knows the whole thing. The, you know, the uncle can tell you that there's no accusation being leveled against you by this girl. And we actually did a tape recording where he said that, but we didn't want to put him directly on the phone. And we got the guy to come out. Through the coaching we, we added in, through the break we added with the other guys. And as soon as he came out, Richie turned to the uncle and pointed to the two local negotiators and said, I hope you know these guys just saved your nephew's life. Because the other thing we need to be really careful of at that point in time, we didn't make it look like we changed the dynamic by showing up. So the minute he came out, you know, the second negotiation, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. We're in another negotiation now 
we got to make sure the guys that did all the work get all the credit, and the FBI does not get the credit just because we showed up for the fourth quarter. And when he said that to the uncle, the uncle said, I know, these guys saved my life. I, I, I owe my nephew's life to these guys. And we were out of there. So you're basically waking up in the morning waiting for some craziness to happen and then running to it? Well, if, if it happens, you know, I got a, I had, back then I had a day job. And uh, the crazy things, hostage negotiations, you know, that, well, that we that might a, get two or three a, a year, maybe, max. So is that's not a regular job? You had a different job and, and the negotiation is... Negotiation the- is an additional duty. And at that time, ultimately, I worked it into a position in New York where running the team was de facto a full-time job. But even running the team then wasn't a full-time job. We're, we're here in Los Angeles now. The guy that was just in tar- charge of the hostage negotiation team, FBI LA, who just got transferred to Quantico into my, one of my old jobs, he had it as a full-time job. And he, and he worked really hard and he made it a full-time job. But normally it's not a full-time job. What are you learning about asking questions the more you do these negotiations? Does, well, does it change the way you ask questions? It, it changes them, and also sometimes the best way to get information is not to ask a question. That, that's what blows a lot of people away, and it's really one of the essences of how we make great business deals. Because um, you need information, everybody thinks the best way to get information is to ask questions, and it is not. What's the best way to get information? Well, I might say, if you, if I might look at you and say, sounds like there's something on your mind. okay see yeah yeah or and i'll give you a great analogy because among the people we coach are real estate agents and uh, we're working with a guy here in town doing a lot of coaching steve schull real estate you know there's plenty of real estate transactions here in los angeles so open house scenario one of the one of the brokers that we're coaching Typically, you walk through an open house, there's uh, an agent is sitting there, they call sitting the open house, and they let you walk around, they get your name, they sign you up, and they try to give you a little bit of room, but then they're going to say, what did you see that you liked? They're going to ask you a question. If, they, if they're smart enough, it's a what or a how question. Those are the best questions typically to ask. They're deferential. There's great power in deference. So they typically say, what you see? What, what, what'd you see about the house you like? We taught them to say, Seems like you saw some stuff you liked. And they told us that the second way, it's called a label, they literally referred to it as opening the floodgates to truth-telling. Because you ask somebody who's a little guarded, what do you think, what'd you see? They go, well, you know, it's okay. You know, they give you a little bit of an answer, but not enough because the question makes them guarded, causes people to raise their guard. And they would say, seems like you saw some stuff that interests you. And they'd go, yeah, you know, we saw the living room and the kitchen and we're thinking about doing this in the kitchen. And <laughs> we looked at the bedrooms and we're thinking about having kids. And that's why she, didn't, she said floodgates of truth talk. That two millimeter change, again, bypasses the prefrontal cortex, which is where all the defense mechanisms are, and bangs right into another part of the brain and starts getting spewed out the mouth. So did you go back and study psychology to understand how the brain works in, in order to get the most out of your questions and comments? You know, we didn't study psychology back then. We just, we studied behavior more. We're looking at behavior. We're tinkering with this all the time. We're constantly looking at it. And the crazy thing is now, neuroscience backs up what we're talking about. Psychology was always just like a bad, rough, Fit. I mean, if you, psychology, in my estimation, before we had neuroscience, is like trying. Psychology is like trying to figure out what's going on on in another room when you can only hear what's being said and you can't see what's going on. I mean, if that's your only way in, because now we can see what's going on in the brain. And psychology was built when we couldn't see what's going on in the brain. So you 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 know you're making a a really rough guess. And, you know, I, I'll give you a great example and, and how easy it is to, to misunderstand because I can remember once I was dating a, a, a female FBI agent 
and in uh, a point in time where we were getting rather passionate, she discovered uh, my the gun that I was carrying at the time, and I happened to be carrying a, a very compact nine millimeter. And she found my gun, and she, in a really loud voice, said, "Oh, it's so small." And I remember I said, you live in a condo and don't say that so loud because if they can hear through the walls, they're going to get the wrong impression. Psychology. Psychology. You know, we're going to misinterpret things. And that's what psychologists were faced with. But now with neuroscience, you can see in the brain. I mean, I can, I can experiment with stuff and I can watch how your brain reacts. And neuroscience has backed up hostage negotiation every step of the way. How did human behavior come to you? How was it taught to you? You know, I don't know. I mean, a little at a time. I, I, I probably first started studying it on the hotline. They brief you on the hotline. You walk in. You, everybody has their misconceptions, principally based on what we've seen on TV or the movies, right? So you go to the hotline, and right off the bat, they say, you're limited to 20 minutes per person. What? Exactly. With somebody who's suicidal? Exactly. And they say, on top of that, if it takes you 20 minutes, you're doing it wrong. So a hotline is just an application of emotional intelligence. And if you apply emotional intelligence to the negotiation, you'll be done fast. It's, it's insane. And that helped. I mean, actually dialing in to somebody that quickly with emotional intelligence, it's shocking how quickly you can resolve things. Hostage negotiations take less time than business negotiations. Hostage negotiations have less shouting and yelling and name calling than business negotiations. And typically in my company, several of us coach negotiations besides training. Our main coach is this guy named Derek. He's brilliant. I called him the other day and I said, have you coached anybody on any deal, any specific deal, longer than a week? And he said, I, I don't think so, but I absolutely know no one's taken longer than 10 days. Now, people come to us with negotiations they've been struggling with for months, up to 18 months. And you follow our coaching, we'll have it resolved typically in seven to 10 days. What? Can everybody learn about negotiating through what you've learned, but for them to use in their ordinary life? Yeah, you know, it's, are there basics? It's going to sound boring. I mean, like, be genuinely curious, no matter how crazy the other side is. That sounds boring as heck. But, and because we want to make our point, everybody want, everybody's dying to make their point. I got an argument, I got logic. I wanna pound you into submission. I wanna make my case. Everybody's dying to make their case. Is it because people don't feel they're listened to? That's exactly it. And you're not listened to over and over and over again. So this, this, is, like, this is like a good comedian following a bad comedian. Like every comedian <laughs> wants to go on stage right after the guy or gal in front of him stunk the place up, got booed off the stage because you're the least fun, bit funny and your audience is gonna love you. You're gonna be the funniest guy they ever heard. Since nobody listens, all you gotta do is listen a little and your counterpart will start unloading on you stuff that they would never have told anybody else. That's the most basic truth to interviewing and I, I see a complete overlap. What's the second point you'd pass on? You know what, before I ask that, I've been curious about this. Are there ways you can teach somebody to be a curious listener? Yeah, it depends upon which trigger, what's gonna make somebody wanna be a curious listener. Like I wanna, I, I wanna outsmart other people. I wanna do it faster than anybody else does. You know, I wanna know the best way to do it. So if being a curious listener is the best way to do it, I am all in because I know I'm going to slaughter my competition by being a great listener. I, you know, and it's not, and my competition is not the person across the table. My competition are the other people that do what I do for a living or, you know, who's ever trying to be me, not who's trying to deal with me. Those are two different things. 
and I want to get deals faster. You know, I, I, I want my company to be famous, and we are, for resolving situations that other people have given up on. When, I'll go back to Derek. You recently coached an insurance settlement negotiation that three attorneys had refused to take. And our client had told us that she, one of the three attorneys was even an ambulance chaser. She ref- described an attorney like that because she was desperate. They, they all told her, you got nothing. You're never going to settle with the insurance company. It was two weeks to the statute of limitations before the insurance company had to settle. Not only did they have less than two weeks to go, it was December 14th. <laughs> Who does business in December? Nobody. She came to us and... She got resolved for in excess of what she was hoping for. She was hoping for $10,000. She got $35,000 out of the insurance company. And she settled it starting on December 14th, and it was finished before December 26th. Emotional intelligence, crazy magic stuff. <laughs> okay, so we got, let's put the pieces together here. We got the acute listening and it, it also sounds from what you're saying, you're not looking at this as like a macho brawl, me right. against them. Right. You're looking at this in a very different way. What is that way? There's, a, there's an old saying from Goldman Sachs called greedy, yes, but long-term greedy. Like if it's a macho brawl, I can maximize this deal and you'll never deal with me again. Or even if you do, you're going to try and get me back. You're going to be vindictive if we have an ongoing relationship. Every subsequent deal is going to be less profitable. And, you know, they say do something right. Three people know about it. Do something wrong. Twelve people know about it. If I've treated you bad, you're going to be bad-mouthing me all over the place. Yeah, it was horrible. It was painful. I didn't like them. The only reason I'm doing business with them is because I have to. Boy, the minute I get a chance to do business with somebody else, we're switching out. And so, so you're like, I'm just envisioning terrorists sitting around talking about you saying, you know, that Chris. He's not a bad guy. Not a bad He's not guy. a bad guy. <laughs> and we actually, we actually get that response sometimes, too, because if we're working a kidnapping internationally, it's going to be a while before we catch up to the bad guys. It's like a bank robbery where the bank robber's gotten away. You're going to find that guy, but he's going to be out there for a while for, before you catch him. So we always, and, and then even, let's say it was domestic hostage taking. It was a siege in Baltimore. Guy murdered four people in a space of about 24 hours. At the time, it was the biggest manhunt in, in the history of Baltimore. I mean, they turned that town, that entire metro area, upside down for about 10 days well, they finally trapped this guy. This guy's name was Joe Palzinski. They caught him uh, in his ex-girlfriend's mom's house, taking the ex-girlfriend mom, mom's boyfriend, an 11-year-old boy hostage, 11-year-old son of the boyfriend. Negotiators, Baltimore County Police Department, phenomenal negotiation team. Not the city of Baltimore, but the Baltimore County. And they get on the phone, and it's everybody's kind of rattled initially, and everybody's a little upset. And the killer on the other end of the phone initially says right away to the negotiator, you're not doing a good job. You're supposed to be establishing rapport with me. How does a killer know that? He'd been barricaded several years before. And if he'd been lied to or misused or mistreated, the first time when he finds himself in another situation like that, he's not going to talk. He's going to kill. So we got repeat customers. I'm really struck as I'm thinking this out, how much this really overlaps with the way I want to conduct an, yeah, in, in, an interview yeah, yeah. where I don't want to make somebody feel like they want to put their arms across their chest yeah. and, and block me out. Yep, yep. The, the interesting thing is sometimes people who are listening and they hear the interviews, which in the past they couldn't because I was a writer, so they didn't know what was on that during the actual interview, but now they're right. hearing this going back and forth. I might be interviewing somebody who says things that the listener 
repels, just is outraged by. Uh-huh. And I don't come back with any outrage and it makes the listener <laughs> mad at me for not right. coming back. And I'm trying to tell them it's not my job to go after them. It's my job to get the most information I can out of the people. Right, right, right. And it sounds to me like you're in the same exact same space. Yeah. You know, I, I wanna I wanna get everything out of you. You know, and and I want you to tell me stuff that you wouldn't have told anybody else. I want to get a full explanation. I assume every relationship is a long term relationship. You know, the the mythology of the one off negotiation. I mean, it is just not there. I mean, we we even treat buying cars as if it's a one off. You 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 buy a used car from a used car lot and it's used car salesman. You're going back there one way or the other. If the car's a clunker, you're going back. Right. If it's not, you're probably going back for service. Or you're going back for something they have or know about that car. I mean, there's everybody assumes negotiations are one-off. They're just not. Not, you know, not, maybe if you think really hard, you might think of a one-off negotiation. But they're not. They, the people stay in your world. You talk to them because they're in your world in the first place. Or they're going to know somebody that knows you. Or you're going to run back into them again. I mean, so yeah, you got, you got to look at everything as a long-term relationship. You get a lot more money. What this seems to be really boiling down to, respect. Respect is a huge part of it. Yeah. Or the feeling of respect. Or the feeling of appreciation. Or, you know, what is, what's your definition of respect? Do I have to like you to respect you? You know, I, I don't know Suge Knight, so I can't say like or dislike. I know him by reputation. I understand where he's coming from, and I guarantee you I could sit down and talk with him and treat him with enough respect that he talked to me. So I don't, I don't want to make a value judgment on any human being on the planet, any terrorist on the planet, and, and, uh, and I'm not making an analogy. I'm not jumping from Suge Knight to terrorist, only the fact that Suge Knight has a reputation for being a difficult guy. I think, actually, in my opinion, Suge Knight has just got a, a set of standards that he sticks to no matter what. And interestingly enough, that's a really hard thing to do. So this is really a flip of a lot of what I thought about negotiations coming in because I always saw them as somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Right. But what you're telling me is this is a real long-term game and winning is making a deal that I guess both parties want and having those relationships stick long-term. Yeah, and um, interestingly enough, people are a lot more interested in how they were treated than the outcome. Whoa, whoa. That's, you know, I can remember a financial guy telling me, we don't get fired when we have bad results. We get fired when we don't return the phone call immediately. Uh, interesting, yeah. It, it sounds like there's the overlap there. Yeah, exactly. It's an, it's an emotional intelligence answer, right? Like if you, if you sit you down and make it, made a deal with Donald Trump and Donald Trump beat you into submission, but you made a lot of money. You're not going to like that. You're going to remember that you got beaten into submission. You sit down and you make a deal with Oprah Winfrey, where the deal is you're Lance Armstrong, and you agree to admit to everything. And he does. And I guarantee you that either one of them can get each other on a phone happily today. Those are two different kinds of negotiations, but those are negotiations. Lance Armstrong agrees to be interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, and the agreement is I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you only get to say yes or no. You can talk about them later, but initially in the questions, you got to say yes. Did you take performance enhancing drugs? Yes or no? He knows that's going to be asked in advance, and he's agreed that he's going to answer. How does he agree to that? Unless she treats him with respect and as, as a ridiculously high level of emotional intelligence. What does he get out of that? It's the first time he admitted to everything. That ain't, <laughs> you know, it's a tough call, right? So I'm, I'm piecing together all the things you've just taught me in the last hour. Some of the things I already knew just from doing what I do. Right. 
at just a huge overlap. Yeah. The listening, I can do. The long-term relationships, I can do. The idea of seeing this as they're not the bad guy, I'm not the good guy. We're two people working something out here. Yeah. Is, is that something that is primarily the way you feel as opposed to all negotiators or do most negotiators come to that conclusion? Well, um, just because you're a negotiator doesn't mean you've learned that. And it's also, that's a hard thing to do and to keep up. It's another part of those skills that, I mean, you got to pay attention to it to stay with it. Because I get my own way sometimes. I get mad. You know, I could tell you two different airline luggage negotiations. One, it went really good. One, it went really bad. I let myself, well, airline, I get trapped on the wrong side of customs in Australia. It's completely my fault. My bags are on one side. I'm on the other. I've been given bad information, but it doesn't matter. I woke up to the airline lost luggage people. I got like, you know, I, and I didn't retrieve my bags from customs. I was told they're going to be checked all the way through. This lady says, it's just like in Los Angeles. You got to pick up your bags and you got to carry them across yourself. You know better than that. And then she goes back to her magazine. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and so I, 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 I got enough sense. I get out of the office because I'm getting mad and frustrated and I'm worried about getting stranded because it's my connection. I'm worried about wearing the same clothes for five days. Fortunately, I get, I get out of there. I get myself back under control. I go back inside. I just hit her with a little tactical empathy. What's going through her mind? What she, every single word that comes out of my mouth, what's she really going to think? That I am the dumbest American in the last 75 years. So I walk back up and I say, look, I'm here to sign up for the Stupid American of the Day Award. <laughs> oh, man. And I find out, where the, I find out you know, the mystical door I got to get to. And I got to negotiate again when I get there. It's like, it was like the door at the Wizard of Oz where you ring the bell and they don't even want to come out. You don't even know what's on the other side of the door. But as it turns out, I use a, I use a line again when, I'm, when I run into those people. Only now, instead of stupid American of the day, I ramp it up a little bit. I'm stupid American of the year. <laughs> and I end up hanging out in a coffee shop for 30 minutes where this wonderful lady knocks herself out, airline personnel, goes to customs, goes and find my bags in customs, walks them through customs for me, meets me back at the door while I'm drinking coffee for half an hour. Just your change of tone. T tone of voice and initial approach. Now, I got, I got another airline story where they lost my bag and tried to tell me that they didn't lose it and that the delivery service company had it. And I got to tell you something, I had trouble keeping my anger under control. And I was like, I want to speak to a supervisor, you know, don't, you know, give me, a, and, and that yeah. just went bad. And I didn't pull myself out of the tailspin in time. And ultimately, in a, in a longer negotiation, I got it kicked up to central baggage, and they resolved it for me. But when I approached those baggage people at the airport the first time through, you know, they are battered children, and anybody come into their office who is not upset and yells at them, and it's, you give them a whiff of that same stereotype, and you are in trouble. And that, and that one that, that took me, it took me three, four days to pull out of that tailspin based on my first interaction with them. So a lot of this is it really goes back to what you were saying about this being a skill that can evaporate if you're not really paying attention to it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's my biggest takeaway of the hour, that these are things you've got to pay attention to in the conversations you have with your kids, yeah. when you're negotiating with them, and with your spouse, with your friends, to see it more in normal life situations. Yeah, yep, yep. Because same principles apply. Yeah, thousand percent. And, and then just by doing that every day, you're going to be better when they lose your luggage. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, key, the key to keep it up is make it fun. Like if you, because you're not going to keep up on something that's arduous. 
So if it's fun, if it's interesting, you know, if you're actually kind of interested, if, if, if you, if you want to do, if you want to make that customer service or baggage person, baggage claims person feel better than they felt all day, you know, if you, if you can find some secondary gain like that, then it ends up being a lot of fun and you end up with some cool stories. You end up with some fun stories. I'm going to try this stuff out. <laughs> and I'm going to get back to you. Uh, excellent. Who knows where this is going to take me? I, and I, I hope, hope, hope I would never have to be in the situations where you ended up. It's hard for me to imagine like applying these things in, in real life, mundane life, like going to the used car dealer when you're dealing with a, a kidnapper. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess that's why we have negotiators, so to keep the personal out of it. Yeah, exactly. Because the personal gets into it so easily. So a big part of this I'm walking away with is just pushing the anger off the table, whatever it is, and just kind of seeing it as like a respectful game. Yeah, good. That's a good phrase. Exactly. Yeah. As long as you're is if if you're a good person, as long as your motives are good. Then, then you can, if, if you're not trying to beat somebody. A lot, of, a lot of women don't buy negotiation books because they don't want to be the stereotype of the typical hard bargaining negotiator. One of the things that's been really interesting that we found is when I've asked women, you know, I'll stand up in front of a group of 300 men and women. And afterwards, if we're selling books, we'll sell 60 books. If I stand up in, in a group of 300 women and afterwards and we're selling books, we'll be lucky if we sell 20. And I've gone back and forth about it. And I've talked to a bunch of women executives and they're like, you know, the stereotype of the typical male negotiator is this loud, threatening, arrogant, relationship-destroying human being. And if there's a gender difference, one of the things is we don't want to be that guy. This is the exact opposite of, the, of everything you've passed on in the last hour. What do you mean? I mean, what you just told me was the exact opposite of a macho confrontation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Every woman should have been buying that book. Yeah. Well, once they understand that it's not a bashing type of negotiation approach, then actually women are, are faster at this. They're, I think they're naturally more suited to us. Emotional, intelligent negotiation, they pick it up faster and more effective. They really begin to pass the male counterparts pretty quickly. No wonder my wife's been beating me up all these years. Oh, man. Well, that's yet another le lesson I've learned in the last hour. There's another, another podcast there, too, huh? <laughs> there we go. Well... I hope to see you down the tracks. I'm going to apply some of these lessons, see where they take me. Most importantly, to keep at them and to be conscious of them every day in every situation so that they're constantly building, much like you talked about learning a language. And I, I got to tell you, like, we, we like helping people. My company, the Black Swan Group, we like help. We got a we got a bunch of stuff that's free. That besides, you know, the, the book buy it on Amazon because that's the best price. I buy them on Amazon when I need more books. I I buy them myself <laughs> on Amazon. But, but we do a lot you, of stuff for free too. You do. Yeah, we got a newsletter. Newsletter comes out once a week, Tuesday mornings. It's short and sweet. A lot of people send you a newsletter, and it's got eight pages and nine articles, and you got to take a nap after you read it. This is short, sweet, and concise, and it's free. All you got to do is you sign up via email. You can, uh, you can sign up. We got a text to sign up function. You send the message, FBI empathy, all one word. Don't put a space between FBI and empathy. So all one word, FBI empathy to the number 22828, 22828. You get a dialog box back. You sign up for free. It's a good price. FBI empathy. There you go, right? Tactical empathy, FBI empathy. All right, you're taking me in a completely new direction here. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. We're going to see you down the tracks. I hope so. All right, thanks. That about wraps it up. I hope you're able to use Chris's wisdom in your day-to-day -day life. And I want to thank Tim Ferriss for bringing it to you. Tim's the one. 
who nudged me to start this podcast. Also want to thank Joy Hillier and Jason Moore for emailing with recommendations on future guests. If there's somebody you'd like to hear on Big Questions, please let me know. And of course, I gotta thank everyone who sent me photos of where they listen to Big Questions. There's one of a cool ironing board sent by Connor Sweetman in Ireland. It's one of my favorites. So, if you haven't yet sent me a photo of where you listen to Big Questions, please do. These photos always bring a smile to my face. Next week, there will be additional smiles on some of your faces, as it will be the start of something special on Big Questions. See you then, and cheers! Cheers!